You know, Thomas was unfairly branded as doubting Thomas because he insisted on seeing the evidence that had convinced the rest of the doubting disciples. James and John were called the sons of thunder because of their explosive nature. They even asked Jesus if he wanted them to command fire, as if they could, to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans who refused to provide a place for Jesus to stay while on his way to Jerusalem. Peter is often referred to as the impulsive disciple because he was quick to speak and swing a sword. Sometimes his quick responses were right on and other times not so much. When Jesus and the disciples went to Caesarea Philippi where Marilyn and I are planning to be in just over a month, Jesus asked the disciples who people thought he was. After several responded with answers that varied from John the Baptist to Elijah to Jeremiah or one of the prophets, Peter got it right. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when Jesus then warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, at least not yet, because he first had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. <laughs> rebuked him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. <laughs> well, Jesus turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. His impulsive nature and having his mind in the wrong place at the wrong time comes into focus again today. Again, last week, after having seen the evidence the other disciples had seen, Thomas, the one who gets demeaned as the doubter, declared, My Lord and my God. They all now knew that Jesus had done what he said he would do. He had risen from the grave. And on his first visit to them on Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday evening, he had told them he was sending them into the world as the Father had sent him. But the next thing we find them doing is not fulfilling what he would later repeat as the Great Commission. Rather than becoming fishers of men that Jesus called them to be, and told them to be, when they first were called even, they just went fishing. And Peter, who had taken on the role of spokesman for the disciples, was the one who led the way. I find it ironic that after Thomas declared that Jesus was his Lord and God, the next thing we hear from the mouth of a disciple is, I'm going fishing. And Peter wasn't suggesting that they start doing what Jesus had commissioned them to do. He just wanted to go fishing. As it turned out, it was a perfect fishing trip, but it didn't start that way. We're in John, the 21st chapter. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. 
There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Now I like this account. I, I love fishing for bass with plastic worms. You know, my dad almost ruined me on fishing by making me soak dough balls for carp. Now, just sitting there waiting for a fish to suck it up was way too boring for me. But casting, continually trying to land the lure in a perfect spot is a lot more fun, and the chance of catching a six-pounder keeps me trying. No, I haven't caught one yet gotten close, and I've caught several five-pounders, but a six-pounder keeps eluding me. And there have been times when all I ended up with was a sore arm and a wet worm. Fishing can be fun, but it can also be frustrating. And the disciples were about to face a night of failure on their fishing trip. But then again, that wouldn't be anything new to them. Peter, James, and John were first called to be fishers of men after a night of catching nothing on the Sea of Galilee. That's where we find them again. The Sea of Tiberias is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And again, thanks to you, it's another place Marilyn and I will soon hopefully be visiting. Well, Jesus had already appeared twice to a gathering of the disciples since the resurrection and had told them to go to Galilee. They were now there, apparently waiting for him to appear, when Peter decided he was going fishing. Now, it is possible that Peter was here expressing a desire to give up the call to be a fisher of men and to go back to just being a fisherman. But I'd rather think he just wanted to go fishing. He was close to the sea. His boat was still there, and he wanted to get out on the water. The others who were with him, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two others, all agreed. They all wanted to go fishing, so they all went together. All seven got into the boat and spent the night hunting for fish. But that night, they caught nothing. And I do find it interesting that John said they caught nothing. Now, he's the author of this gospel. And like Luke in the we passages that indicate he was with Paul at times, John could have said, we caught nothing. But uh, that's hard for fishermen to admit. But they did catch nothing. It was a bad night for fishing, but the trip wasn't over. The trip wasn't over. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. At first light, the disciples saw someone on the shore, but couldn't make out who it was. 
He called to them children or boys. You haven't caught anything, have you? They had to admit that they hadn't. But who was this man? And how did he know that they hadn't caught anything? Then he said something else that surprised them. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. How do you know that? Could he see some fish? They couldn't see. You know, there are times when you can see bass swimming along the shore, and it's really frustrating when you plop a lure right in front of their nose and they completely ignore it. That wasn't the case here, for as we'll soon see, they were about 100 yards offshore. And it was still so dark that they couldn't see who the man was. But he spoke with such authority and confidence that they did what he said. They cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and when they tried to pull it back into the boat, it was full of fish. They'd caught more than they could handle. Who was this man? And why did his command seem vaguely familiar? Andrew wasn't with them now, but hadn't someone told Peter, Andrew, James, and John to do something similar three years ago after a night of catching nothing? On that occasion, it took two boats to haul in their catch. Could the man on the shore be the same man who had been responsible for that catch as well? John's the one who put two and two together. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. As usual, John remains incognito and refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Now, I don't think he's flaunting his relationship with Jesus here, even though he did refer to himself that way five times in his gospel. And while there is debate as to why, perhaps he was using it here to simply explain why he was so quick to recognize Jesus. He was, admittedly, closer than the others to Jesus. And that's why he was the first to recognize who was standing there. But when Peter, the impetuous one, found out who it was, he jumped right into the water. He grabbed his shirt, he threw it on, and threw himself into the sea. I don't know if he thought he could still walk on water or just thought he could get to Jesus quicker by swimming. I don't know what he thought. I don't think he cared one way or another. He just wanted to get there. He just wanted to get to Jesus. His enthusiasm is admirable. Unless you're one of the six left in the boat with the fish. They had to row to shore, dragging a net full of fish. Apparently, they hadn't heard of catch and release. When they got to the shore, they were in for another surprise. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, 
the net does not torn. Now, there's nothing like fresh fish cooked over an open fire after a successful fishing trip. And that's what waited them on the shore. Jesus had made a fire and was already cooking fish when they arrived. And he had some bread. He had either planned a little cookout for himself on the beach that morning or had planned on meeting them there. Either way, he invited them to add some of their fish to the fire. And while the others just stood there, no doubt in awe with their mouths wide open, Peter went back to the boat and dragged the net to shore. As they opened the net, someone counted the fish. They'd hauled in 153 large fish. You can tell a fisherman is writing this account. He included the exact number and the size of the fish in his fish story. But the story is not over yet. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first time Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he ate fish in their sight to prove that he wasn't a ghost. This time he offered them something to eat. He invited them to join him and served up the fish and bread. And what a breakfast that must have been. They were eating breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the resurrected Lord. It was something they would never forget. But why does John tell us about this fishing trip? His gospel could have ended at the close of chapter 20. In fact, it sounds like he had originally intended it to end there. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's a perfect ending. You know, it's almost like he finished and then had an afterthought. Oh, oh, I wanted to tell them about the fishing trip. But why? Why was this so important to John? Surely he wanted to do more than just tell about a pleasant day on the beach with Jesus. And if he had more in mind, what was it? What lessons can be gleaned from this strange account. Well, John doesn't point any out. But commentators have searched for them for 2,000 years, and many think they found them in that number, 153. Now, I'm not sure where they got the rest of their numbers, but some insist 100 stands for the fullness of the Gentiles, 50 for the remnant of Israel, and three, obviously, for the Trinity. 
They conclude that 153 is a symbolic way of indicating that it would take all three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to bring Jews and Gentiles together into the kingdom. Augustine pointed out that if you add together 10, the number of commandments, the 10 commandments, and 7, the traditionally held number of gifts from the Spirit, the gifts of grace, you get 17. And if you add together all the numbers from 1 to 17, you know, 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth, you get, guess what? 153, which he concluded indicates that all who come to Jesus will come through a combination of law and grace. Those of a more biological persuasion have suggested that there were perhaps 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee at the time. And they take that as a sign that people from every tribe and nation will be brought into the kingdom. Others look beyond the number and find significance in the fact that the net didn't tear. It contained them all. They, they see in that the promise that there will be room for all in the kingdom of God. And we won't know the total number of those saved until the net is spread on the shore of heaven. And then some take note of the fact that the disciples failed in their efforts to catch fish until they listened to Jesus and followed his instructions explicitly. They suggest this is a warning that if we try to win the world on our own, without the direct guidance of his spirit, we will fail as fishers of men. There are still other suggestions as to the significance of the catch, including mathematical calculations I don't understand, even one from Pythagoras himself. He's got an interesting diagram of a fish. I don't know how he got that. But maybe, maybe it's good enough to simply note that what made the disciples' fishing trip perfect was Jesus. It was Jesus. You know, whether you want to look at this fishing trip as occupational, they were wanting to go back to be, being fishermen, or, or recreational, they were just having fun, the fact remains, without Jesus, it would have been a failure. It would have been failure, and that is true of everything in life. No matter how successful we are or how much we enjoy something, it will fail to bring fulfillment without Jesus. The greatest job in the world means little if it has no eternal significance or isn't used as a means to serve Christ. And recreational accomplishments that don't glorify him soon become nothing more than distant memories or tarnished medals. Our best efforts in work or play will come to nothing if we haven't listened to the voice of Jesus calling out directions and offering an invitation to join him on the shore. So what about you this morning? Have you recognized his voice and responded to his call? If you have ears to hear, I pray you can hear Jesus 
calling to you. Let's stand and respond.